Advent is about messengers. Our text this morning is drawn from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you would bring these Advent themes alive to us, that we would understand them, and that we would apply them, even this Advent season. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, we went to Arches National Park in Utah. I asked my daughter Christiana to plan out a hike, and having no idea of what to expect, she randomly picked a trail. We got on the trail and hiked up and up the hot, dusty trace, over ridges and into craggy valleys, and finally around and around a trail along a rocky cliff and popped out onto a red-orange plateau. And there before us, we were surprised to unexpectedly see the huge, delicate arch, the most famous arch in America, the one that appears on the Utah license plate. Likewise, as we look at how God sent his messenger to announce the coming of Christ, you may be surprised to unexpectedly find that you are the messengers. You are the messengers. Go and open up your Bibles. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And it says there in Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. Now Mark, the apostle, as he is wont to do, is brief, concise, and sudden. When you're reading Mark's gospel, you feel like you're running to a conclusion. There's no genealogy in here like we find in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke. And there's not all the heavy Jewish overtones that you find in the other synoptics. And what do we see here? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Greek here, arche, two, Euangelium, euangelium, the euangelion, the gospel, the word arche is where we get our word arch from, like archdeacon or archenemy. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the gospel, which is the announcement of the coming of the reign and rule of the Christ. The beginning of the gospel of who? Yesu Christu. Yesu Christu. We need to pay attention to these details to see where God is going with his word. Here we have Huiu Christu, I'm sorry, Yesu Christu, Jesus. And what is Jesus when it's translated out of the Greek and into Hebrew? It's Joshua. 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 What's God trying to say through this? Why was Jesus named that name? Joshua, the great warrior prince who conquered Canaan. And then he's got his title here, Christ, the anointed one. The promise to come, deliverer of God's people. And then finally here it says, Huiyu Theyu. Huiyu, son, Theyu, God. The son of God. Not just a great prophet. He's already been called the Christ here. But the great metaphysical God-man. Going on to verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this is drawn from Isaiah chapter 40. It's pointing forward to a future Israel. 700 years after the prophet Isaiah would write down these words. 700 years in the future when they would hear the voice of a messenger crying out. Where? In the wilderness. Why the wilderness? 
You ever thought about that? These are questions you should ask of the text. Why is this man named John there? Why is he in the wilderness? What's he doing? These aren't random events in random places. God's communicating something through all these symbols. Israel has traditionally been exiled to, reformed, and emerging from a wilderness experience. Think about the prime one, when they come out of Egypt in slavery. And they go into the wilderness and they wander there for 40 years and God prepares them. God reforms them. God raises up a new generation of faithful Israelites to go into the land of promise in conquest. And we see that after they come into the land, they enter a wilderness experience there. Joshua conquers portions of the land. The conquest is there for the taking to finish off. But we enter the phase of the judges where Israel then enters into a wilderness within the promised land, where they're surrounded by enemies without, and they're conquered by enemies within tribes that they didn't conquer and should have. 400 years of wilderness within the land of Canaan, but they emerge on the other side to the age of the kings. And then they disobey God. The kingdom splits. They don't follow God's law. He warns them and sends prophets to them, but they will not listen and so for 70 years, they're sent into exile in the wilderness of Babylon, removed from the land. Will they ever return? God reforms them. And then in the days of Nehemiah, he brings them back from exile into the land. But here we have a messenger in the wilderness in the first century. What's going on here? The voice of the messenger cries from the wilderness to prepare for the first advent, the first coming of the Messiah. Friends, with lockdowns and riots and hatred of the faith, we're reminded that until this age ends, the wilderness in one degree or another is still here. But you are the messengers to a new generation to prepare for Advent, to prepare for the final Advent of the Christ. Let's go on to verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, this messenger here, he's dressed like Elijah. He acts like Elijah. He appears baptizing where Elijah crossed the Jordan and was taken away in the chariot of fire. Think about where he's at. We're told in the Gospel of John that he's baptizing at Bethany, east of the Jordan. And scholars put the placement of this place of baptism by John at the exact spot where Elijah was taken up in the chariot of fire. Isn't that fascinating? In the days of Elijah the prophet, he comes with Elisha, his intern, the guy he's training up to be the new prophet. They come to the Jordan River. They're in the land of Israel. They come to the cusp of the Jordan River, and Elijah takes off his cloak, and when it touches the Jordan River, it parts. It parts just like the days of Joshua. And then he and Elisha walk on the dry ground through the midst of this body of water, and they come to the far shore. Now they're outside the land. Now they're on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, and there the chariot of fire comes and takes Elijah away. And guess what? John's here. John's right there. He's at that spot, baptizing and preaching, that same spot where Elijah was taken up in the chariot of fire. What's God trying to say? In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus said this, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, 
And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, in Israel in the first century, people are looking for a literal return of Elijah. They think that God's going to bring him back from the dead. They didn't see what God was doing. And bringing John the Baptist as the new messenger at the same spot, he's functioning as the greatest of prophets. He's coming as the new and final Elijah who announces the way of the coming of the king. The messenger is preparing the people for the advent of Messiah. And here's where it gets deeper. And who is this Messiah that this new Elijah is announcing? It's the new Joshua. The new Joshua. Turns out the same spot where Elijah was taken up in the chariots of fire on that eastern shore of the land of Israel on that far shore of the river Jordan is the exact same spot where Joshua crossed into the land and the river parted as well. So we've got the new Elijah announcing the coming of Messiah who is the new and final Joshua. Israel is outside the land in the wilderness right where the first Joshua brought Israel into the promised land. Verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It was a compelling, unique, and providential time as all Judea and Jerusalem went out to be baptized in the river Jordan. But friends, now is a compelling, unique, and providential time to call all people to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here they are, east of the Jordan, right where Israel was baptized under Joshua. Now the story gets deeper here. Let's plumb down more and see the deep symbolism of this act. They're here, right where Joshua crossed into the land, where this body of water parted just like the Red Sea. Friends, the Red Sea was a baptism. If you don't know this, look in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says straight up, the passage through the Red Sea was the people of God being baptized into Moses, into the cloud, into the pillar of fire. The Red Sea passage, this water parting, and the people of Israel passing through, we're told, was a baptism. But what do we find in God's word in Psalm 114? God sprinkles all these details down. It's sort of like, like little crumbs, and you pick them up, and then suddenly you realize you have a whole loaf. God loves a good detective story, and he sprinkles things in his word so that you have to go read it and do the work, and then you're like, this is so cool. You get to Psalm 114, and what does the psalmist say about the Red Sea passage? He says this in verse 3. The sea looked and fled. The sea looked and fled. But then right after that, he says, Jordan turned back. Then he says, the mountains skip like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. You see what God did there through the psalmist? He linked those two events. Because if you look at it, it's pretty clear as day. They're actually the same thing. The Red Sea Passage, where Israel comes out of slavery, reformed, baptized, anointed into a new way of life as free men and women preparing to go into conquest in the land of Canaan, pass through the Red Sea, and they're baptized. But that generation wouldn't believe, and so it's their children, their sons and daughters, who come to the cusp of the Jordan River, and what does it do? It parts just like the Red Sea did. It's another baptism. They pass through. 
They begin conquest, and here's Elijah, right at that same spot, right at the Jordan River, and what's he doing? He's preaching and baptizing, baptizing Israel in preparation for the conquest of the king that's about to come. Verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Note the messenger is dressed exactly like Elijah, who had gone before 900 years. Now, in the days of Elijah, he was dressed weird. I mean, maybe you think in there, it's like, well, maybe that's what they wore in 900 B.C. or something, right? No, they didn't. And for John the Baptist to come and dress like this is even stranger. He's wearing this anachronistic, almost 1,000-year-old costume. And he's appearing there at the Jordan River. What's he trying to say? If you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah is getting ready to die. King Ahaziah of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he sends messengers to go and inquire of the priests of Baal amongst the Philistines. Am I going to die? And Elijah meets them and says, you go back to the king. You tell him, is there not a prophet in Israel? You're going to die. And then the king, when he hears these words from his messengers... He said, what did the man look like? He had on a hair shirt and a leather belt around his waist. And Ahaziah said, ah, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. Here he is, the new Elijah, John the Baptist. He's wearing a camel hair garment. He's got a leather belt around his waist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. Kids, he's eating locusts. Now, I've heard people say, it's fruit for the locust tree. No, it ain't. Big old grasshoppers. Like the ones you see in Africa, and they're like swarming over. We get them up here in the, the high plains sometimes. You roast them on a fire, they get crispy on the outside. And they supposedly taste just like shrimp, but I'm not going to try them. <laughs> Interestingly, they're clean food according to the dietary laws of Israel. So locusts are clean, and here he's eating honey. Locusts and honey, hair shirt, leather belt around his waist. He's forecasting entry into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And his message is your message. Come, enter the promised land of the kingdom of God. Verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. After the new Elijah comes, the new Joshua, the great king, the mightiest of warrior poets, the conqueror of Satan, and the ruler of the nations. He already came, and he's coming again. He will conquer the Romans. He will conquer the Visigoths. He will conquer the Vikings. He will conquer the Aztecs. He will conquer the Zulus and the wild tribes of New Guinea, the Chinese, the Somalis, the North Koreans, and who are any of us to untie his sandals? And yet he makes us his messengers. He sends us forth with the message of the final advent. Like John, you've been chosen to be messengers to announce his coming. So I want to say to you this morning, big people and little people, be bold. Be bold. When your fellow Christians tell you not to be so dogmatic about the Bible, you can say back to them, you better prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Some of you getting ready to go off to college when your fellow college students and maybe even faculty members rage against the Christian faith, call you names, and even physically attack you, you can say to them, you better prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, because he's coming. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, 
and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John, the messenger, baptized the people with water in preparation for the coming of the king and the kingdom. But you, you, you've been baptized into the divine name and into the arrived kingdom, and now you are the messengers. What kind of messengers are you? And what kind of message do you send? Do you think John, the messenger, would be afraid of COVID and shut down the church, quivering at every fear-filled order from the government? Well, the church has been doing its duty straight through every plague in history. Would John, the messenger, look with angst upon an increasingly left-wing government that's more and more godless and shrink back with fear and trembling? Well, the church has been staring down rulers and speaking truth to power for 2,000 years. You are the messengers of the King of Kings, the emissaries of the gospel of God, who have been set apart by baptism with the Holy Spirit of God. And remember, when John comes, he's not just spoken of or speaks of the Spirit coming, but the Spirit comes with fire. Fire. When the Spirit's poured out on Pentecost, he comes with fire. In some sense, your baptism is a baptism of fire. Why? Because the Spirit moves through you. He burns through your sins. He moves through your words ahead of you. He burns down the field of unbelief and draws in the nations. He moves through this age and amongst the people of God. He moves history where he will. And you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The world needs to hear about Jesus. The world needs the fellowship offered by the church. You are the messengers of God. Cast out fear and gird up your loins for holy war this Advent. It's a tense Advent season out there in the world. Tension as we await a combative election season. Tension as we look forward to a more antagonistic culture toward the Christian faith. But the message is the same as it's always been in this age between the Advents. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And you are the messengers we are those who walk through the valley of the shadow of death without fear, full of faith. We are those who sally into dark places and bring the light of Christ. We are the messengers of the kingdom come. So be bold this Advent season. Exhort people to gather to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords and be prepared to kiss the sun on the day of his final Advent. For you are the messengers. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this day. Strengthen us, cause us to rejoice in the first advent of your Son, but to long for the final advent of your Son, and to call the world to prepare for it. We pray that you'd bless us even this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.